0: Welcome to the Lancet Oncology Podcast. I'm Aaron Van Dorn, speaking to you from the Lancet's New York office. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Dr. Saro Armenian, Director of the Childhood Cancer Survivorship Clinic at the City of Hope National Medical Center in Duarte, California, to discuss the long-term health concerns for survivors of childhood cancers. Dr. Armenian, can you tell us a little bit about the background to your study? What are the cardiomyopathy risks for survivors of childhood cancer?
1: You know, as pediatric oncologists, we are privileged to have seen tremendous advances in the treatment of uh, childhood cancer. And and currently, there are a growing number of long-term survivors of childhood cancer. And this has really been as a result of collaboration and and cooperative studies that have looked at different approaches to treatment. And in children and pediatrics, we use a number of approaches that include both a combination of chemotherapy, radiation, as well as surgery. Most children tolerate the treatment quite well, and and more than 80% of them are expected to be long-term survivors across the board. But we also know that now that as these children are growing, that there is a high risk of developing long-term health-related complications in certain subsets of these patients who are treated with high doses of very intensive therapy. And so cardiomyopathy refers to the cardiac dysfunction or weakening of the heart muscle that is associated with exposure to high doses of a certain chemotherapeutic drug called anthracyclines, or the group of drugs called anthracyclines, in addition to radiation that has been used in the past and currently is being used to uh, mediastinum or to the chest wall. Um, can you briefly outline the aims of your study? Essentially, the aims of the study were really, a, the report is really more of a Description of a collaborative international effort that was organized first in 2010 as a means of trying to systematically review the existing literature on how to follow up these patients who are at risk for cardiomyopathy over time. There have been a number of initiatives with this international cooperative group or international group called the International Guideline Harmonization Group. The first was the development of screening guidelines and recommendations for follow up for childhood cancer survivors who are at risk for developing breast cancer due to radiation to the chest. And then the second set of guidelines was really to develop screening and follow-up recommendations for children who are at risk for developing cardiomyopathy as adults. And so this effort really just outlines the exhaustive effort of this international um, collaborative effort to come up with recommendations for screening and uh, monitoring as well as intervention for children at highest risk of developing cardiomyopathy.
0: Why was there a need for guideline harmonization for cardiomyopathy surveillance for survivors of childhood cancer?
1: The reason is, is because a number of or groups around the world have actually come to recognize this cardiomyopathy problem as a significant problem in our um, childhood cancer survivors. And each group on their own had, until now, come up with their own specific recommendations for screening, monitoring, as well as what they defined as being specific high-risk populations. And there was significant discordance in terms of certain areas of these recommendations across these various groups. And this lack of harmonization and recommendations for screening could then result in, in confusion as well as. In large part, we, you know, our focus was really to identify where the differences were across these um, recommendations and come up with a set of guidelines that were essentially developed based on strict evaluation of the available data, use of standardized definitions of certain outcomes, and that we wanted to make sure that the quality of the evidence as well as the strength of the recommendations were really according to a set of criteria that were based on rigorous standards. And uh, we wanted to make sure that everyone was holding up to those standards across each, each of these groups. Um, and so that was really sort of the impetus for our um, work together.
0: What were the main areas of agreement between the guidelines and the main areas of disagreement?
1: One of the first things that we actually did when we came together was to actually identify the areas of agreement and disagreement, recognizing that the areas of agreement were, we did really didn't need to spend too much time in terms of you know the extensive literature review and the vetting of the information. So areas of agreement, I think, initially was that we all knew that there was compelling evidence that the group of an- chemotherapy drugs called anthracyclines put survivors of childhood cancer at risk for developing cardiomyopathy later in life as adults. We also know that the use of chest radiation, so radiation, that could potentially impact the heart and its structures can affect your risk of developing heart failure. We recognized, all of us, that certain cardiovascular risk factors such as hypertension and diabetes and physical inactivity and, and other health conditions could significantly impact the risk in patients who have already been treated with cardiotoxic treatments such as anthracyclines and radiation. We also believe that a regular screening for these survivors could potentially be beneficial over time in terms of trying to identify early evidence of cardiac dysfunction before individuals have symptomatic heart failure, which is sort of the endpoint of cardiomyopathy. The areas of disagreement were primarily related to what each of us defined as a high-risk subgroup that really warrants closer surveillance and monitoring In addition, there was some disagreement in terms of the imaging modality to use in our screening approaches, the frequency of screening, and whether or not screening should be over a lifetime or whether or not it should end after a certain period of time. And then lastly, there was some disagreement in terms of how firm we needed to be in our recommendations for what treatment to initiate once abnormalities had been identified. So we primarily focused, I would say, the majority of our time in trying to work out some of the differences through a systematic review of the available literature and the grading of the strength of that literature.
0: How did you go about resolving the differences between the guidelines?
1: That really had to do with first organizing a group of panelists or, or um, collaborators that were representatives from each of the groups that had developed their own screening guidelines. And so this group of individuals then was sort of, we developed subcommittees, and each of the subcommittees was tasked with sort of answering a specific question where there was discordance. As part of answering that question where there was discordance, for example, what surveillance modality should be used. If there was discordance in that area, one task force was given that responsibility. And what, as part of the responsibility, they, they performed a comprehensive review of the existing literature. And it's not a matter of just pulling out the articles and actually reading them, but it's really a matter of actually critically evaluating the, the strength of the evidence and the quality of the evidence and then accordingly develop with specific recommendations according to um, set criteria. And these the quality of the evidence is really evaluated through the uh, recommendation assessment, development, and evaluation tool, which is GRADE, and the classification of the recommendations, or the strength of the recommendations of how strongly we felt about it, was essentially modeled after the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association definitions of what we consider strong, moderate, and weak recommendations. What were the
0: implications of your findings?
1: I think the one of the implications is that We, at this point, so the the four groups that had actually worked closest were the North American Children's Oncology Group, Dutch Children's Oncology Group, the UK Children's Cancer and Leukemia Group, and then the Scottish Intercollegiate Guidelines Network. So the the immediate implication is that that there's going to be a uniformity in terms of our approach to screening and monitoring and surveillance of these patients across both North America as well as Europe. And our hope is that our relatively transparent process in terms of how we evaluated and graded the evidence will give legitimacy and credence to the actual effort that and to, to the recommendations that are put forward and so that they potentially may be adopted across other countries. They don't necessarily have their own set of guidelines. And so for institutions in countries where there aren't established standardized guidelines, these may potentially serve as templates or models to follow in their routine follow-up of long-term survivors of childhood cancer. And that's very important to to sort of emphasize: is that the recommendations that we made will recognize fully the limitations of resources and access to care that may be in certain countries, but not in others. And as such, we try to. Uh, The broaden the scope of our recommendations to try to um, to capture as many individuals would be in 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 this uh, who who would potentially be affected in in these recommendations. But the last last thing I'd want to emphasize also is that our review of the the literature and our discussions and our formulation of recommendations also brought forth a very important set recognition that there is a there are key questions, key, key research questions that still have yet to be answered, that need to be answered for this population. And as a result, we've developed a table in the outline, outline in the document that, if anything, really is just as important as the recommendations, which is specific key research questions that have yet to be answered and that need to be answered in a very systematic way, which is what we propose doing moving forward in a collaborative manner. Speaking
0: of the consensus agreements that you were speaking of earlier, how robust do you think these consensuses are going to be going forward?
1: No, I think that when there was evidence to support a certain recommendation, we graded the evidence, and that will really speak for itself. Because the studies in which we actually draw our conclusions from are actually included as an appendix, as part of the appendix, so they'll be able to individuals will be able to look them up and actually judge them and and, and see for themselves in terms of whether or not they agree with the strength and the level of the quality of the evidence grading that we had. There are other recommendations that are really consensus-based, where we really did not find high-quality evidence to support one recommendation versus another. And that's not because there was no there, there was conflicting evidence. It's largely because there aren't that many studies addressing specific subtopics of this. And so where that was the case, we clearly mentioned that this was a consensus-based recommendation based on clinical expertise as well as the potential for good, the potential for benefit outweighing the potential for harm. And so that is transparent and that's available and, that, and people will be able to see that in the document. Those, I think, are areas that need to be further developed and explored in a systematic uh, manner and and sort of with collaborative research.
0: With major areas of research still to be explored in this subject, do you think that it would make sense to have different guidelines for different areas, or do you think efforts should be put forward to universalizing guidelines and recommendations across different areas?
1: in terms of uh, not necessarily cardiovascular disease or are we... So
0: in terms of cardiomyopathy in your study, uh, obviously there's some issue with, you said that there's still some major research to be done, but do you think that universal guidelines are the way to go forward or should they be looking for, towards more refining the individual guidelines that are still in existence?
1: That's a, that's a great question. I think um, what this does essentially is that it sets the stage for the basic screening and surveillance that should be happening in this population establishes what we think are high-risk populations and makes the case for lifelong surveillance for these very high-risk subsets of patients. As we start getting more information about the specific areas that we don't have enough studies on, I think that that will give us an opportunity to continue to refine and to to update the guidelines as they come along. If these updates happen within the individual groups before then, 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 then that's fine. I think ultimately we believe that our best effort is when we put all of our energies together to collaboratively come up with recommendations that are really going to benefit the most amount of individuals um, taking into consideration the limitations to resources and access to care across the world. And I think that we've learned in, in the treatment of childhood cancer that collaborative approaches are really the best way to do it. And we hope that in the future, with emerging data and emerging studies, that we'll be able to update these guidelines to better reflect the, the studies that address the key areas that, at this point, there's not enough information on.
0: Is there anything else that our listeners should be aware of?
1: I think that it's important to emphasize that this was an exhaustive effort that really involved a comprehensive review of the existing literature. That uh, was, and this was a, a transparent process, and that the the weight of the evidence was very clearly evaluated and graded. We only relied on high impact and and high quality studies to, to really formulate our recommendations we recognize fully that some of these recommendations are going to be consensus based just based on the paucity of studies out there but we recognize that cardiomyopathy and subsequent resultant heart failure is a significant problem for our aging population of cancer survivors. And as they continue to age and enter into their fourth, fifth, and sixth decades of life, we continue to be very concerned about the risk of cardiomyopathy and heart failure that that it's still there, and there are emerging studies to show that is going to continue to increase over time. So this is a growing concern for our um, next, for our aging cohort of the first generation of cancer survivors that we uh, are going to be following in our clinics.
0: Dr. Armenian, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Thank you.